conversations with prominent pastors, teachers, and leaders. This is the Pastor Well Podcast from Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Now your host, Dr. Herschel York. Hello and welcome to the Pastor Well Podcast. This is Herschel York, the Dean of the School of Theology at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. I'm also pastor of the Buck Run Baptist Church in Frankfurt. The Pastor Well Podcast is dedicated to helping those who serve the Church of the Lord Jesus Christ be faithful in their ministry. And today I am particularly delighted to have someone I have long wanted to meet and get to know, Sam Albury. We're so delighted that you're going to be with us. Uh, Sam, uh, welcome to the Pastor Well Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Well, uh, you are a pastor and a writer based in Maidenhead in uh, in England. Yep. Uh, what a name for a town, I may say. Yeah, I have no idea how it came to be named like that, but it's it's a great name. Uh, I, I was wondering if it had something to do with Mary. I do not know. Well, the church I've been at is called St. Mary, so that could be. Uh, I should look into it. That that's that's the only thing that I could come up with. That, that <laughs> perhaps there's a connection there. Uh, Sam's also a global speaker for uh, Ravi Zacharias International Ministries. He's an editor and writer for the Gospel Coalition and the author of a number of books on Christian belief, including most recently Seven Myths About Singleness, along with Why Bother the Church, James for You, and the best-selling Is God Anti-Gay. Sam studied at Wycliffe Hall in Oxford. He's worked at St. Ebb's Church in Oxford, where he oversaw the ministry to university students, and then at St. Mary's Church in Maidenhead, where he's been based since 2008. He's an ordained minister in the Church of England and was recently elected to serve on its governing body, the General Synod. Sam speaks on a, widely on a number of issues about sexuality and identity and continues to minister as a Bible teacher and pastor. Uh, Sam, uh, first of all, I am curious, as someone who uh, identifies as same-sex attracted and yet chooses uh, to uh, value celibacy, you you believe in the biblical sexual ethic uh, that sex is expressed only within a covenant marriage. So how are you regarded in the Church of England? <laughs> um, well, just one thing, I, I, I would describe myself as same-sex attracted. I wouldn't identify myself as that in, in terms of identity. Uh, in the Church of England, I'm a, I'm a bit of an anomaly. Um, uh, there's there's plenty of people in the Church of England who are strongly advocating for the blessing of gay relationships, same-sex marriage, redefinition of marriage. And so to have someone who has those attractions but has a very different theology means that sometimes people either don't know what to do with me or are just very frustrated with me because my existence is, in some sense, is a challenge to the, the kind of progressive theology because they would be saying we have to adopt this theology because some people have these feelings and me and there are others too are saying well some of us have these feelings too but that's no reason to change the theology that's right you know it seems i recently preached through i'm preaching through the gospel of luke at my church on sunday mornings and having a blast doing it i preached the temptation narrative Mm -hmm. and it seems to me that when satan tempts jesus to turn uh, in Luke's gospel, a stone into bread, that he's engaging in a type of identity politics. He's asking Jesus mm-hmm. to define himself by the desire of his flesh. He's He's mm-hmm. been without food for 40 days. And Satan is saying, 
you know, surely God wants you to indulge this, and surely you can use your power to do this. Hmm. But Jesus, as the Son of God, is on a distinct mission, and he can't deviate from the mission uh, even to satisfy what are natural desires. Uh, can you relate to that? I, I can, and in one sense I can't because Jesus even there is denying natural and, and good desires. Um, whereas in my case, I'm, I'm dealing with very fallen desires. But it's interesting, I haven't sort of thought of my own situation in the light of, of that scripture, but I think that's a very that's a very powerful text to turn to because you have a feeling, because you have an appetite, because you have a longing is not a sign that it needs to be indulged. Even when you have the power to 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 satisfy it. Yeah. I mean, the mission of God is, is greater than that. And that seems to me to be what is what gets lost in so much of the discussion is that the lordship of Jesus just isn't part of the conversation. No, it's the lordship of self. And yeah. we, we live in a culture that is particularly at this time adamant that there is no higher good than self-expression and self-fulfillment. And so if you if your longings are who you are, then you have to indulge them in order to be yourself. Right, which is really an idolatrous worship. Yeah. When I mean, we're putting self on the throne and taking Absolutely. God off. I, I keep marveling at the fact that the, the thing Jesus tells us to do with self is not express it but deny it. Right. That's just so, so radically different to our culture. It really is. Well, uh, what unique challenges do you think remain in the church for those who are same-sex attracted but committed to living uh, the Christian view of, of sexuality? I think there are many challenges, and it, it will vary from person to person. Uh, there is obviously the challenge that culture is very strongly trying to push you in a particular direction. Um, that is, that can feel like a different, a difficult current to, to swim against. And there's not always as much understanding and encouragement within the church as there could be. Um, so I think sometimes people don't feel that they can share that this is a struggle for them. Right. They're, they're worried about how that will be received or what, how people will treat them in the light of that. Um, and sometimes there's just the, the, the challenges you have of being single as well kind of plays into this. Sometimes people don't feel as part of the church family if they are, say, over 35 and single. So as well as the challenges of sexual temptation and trying to, to remain faithful in a difficult cultural context, there can be the added challenge of, of loneliness and feeling isolated. Well, the Southern Baptist solution to that has always been, well, we, you've got to have a singles ministry. But the reality is, uh, in most churches, you have to have a, a, a certain number of singles to be able mm. to pull that off and have a, a minister that's dedicated solely to ministering to singles. Most most churches can't do that. So how can uh, a, a moderate-sized or average-sized mm. church of, of any kind have a ministry to singles that helps them be faithful? Uh, what, what would that look like? Well, I, th I think in a way, actually, being moderately-sized helps because what, what – all of us need is is spiritual family. And sometimes th there can be good things by having a, a particular singles ministry with a singles group. The danger of that is all, all the singles get hived off into one compartment or right. everybody else is in a different one. Right. And the two never kind of interact. And, you know, we, we need in the Christian life, we need spiritual mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters and sons and daughters. And so actually being, I think, in a moderate to small-sized church, 
that makes that more doable because you, you can know a greater proportion of the church family. You can feel as though this is your family. So I think one of the things we can do is to teach up that church as family theme that we see throughout the New Testament. It's not negating the, the reality and importance of our biological and natural families, but it's, it's simply saying that alongside that we overlay the reality and importance of our spiritual family. That's exactly right. And, and there needs to be a place at the table uh, in family units for others in, the, in our church mm. family that are widowed or single. I mean, the reality is you've got a lot of different kinds of singles. That's the thing. And I, I think the, the number of people who are single, again, is, is increasing. As people live longer, right. as sadly more marriages fail, we're going to have more people who are divorced, bereaved. And that can be a, a demographic that actually, I mean, my, I think of my grandfather who, I remember the golden wedding anniversary of him and my grandmother. Uh, she died not that long afterwards. He's now 101. Wow. He's nearly been single for as long as he was married. Yeah. Which is amazing but, when you think he was married for over 50 years. That is a, that's amazing. So that, that you know, and that, that's the other issue is I think we often think singles equals 20s and 30s. Right. The not yet married. Sometimes it's the never married and sometimes it's the formally married and that the needs of each life stage will be slightly different. But for all of us, we, we need the community of God's people. I, I am privileged to pastor a church that has historically, I think, done this well. I recently had, uh, I got to preach the funeral of a lady that had uh, lived her whole life. Buck Run had been the only church she'd uh, ever been a member of, I think. And uh, I asked her one day, not long before she died, I, I said, uh, Miss Frida, I said, do you regret never having married? And she said, no, not really at all. Hmm. She said, Buck Run has been my family. The Lord has used me. She kept our church nursery, worked in the nursery for over 50 years. Wow. And she said, uh, Jesus has really been enough for me. Huh. And That is so said, beautiful. You know, it, it, was, it was absolutely, I told that at her funeral because yeah. I mean, this that's it. That's what it looks like. And what, what's so beautiful about that is she can say Jesus is enough, but that doesn't mean... She didn't need people. That's right. And Jesus is enough when actually we have spiritual family around us. Yeah, she, I mean, you think about most of the the men who are deacons in my church and the ladies who serve and teach, uh, at one point or another, she held them. I mean, if, they, if they're ones that grew up in our church, she held them in her arms hmm. in the nursery, and she watched them grow up, and she was in their homes. And what a beautiful picture of the of the faith community uh, that is embracing uh, people like Miss Frida, yeah. and uh, our church has several like that. <laughs> I I have a lady in my church who very is very candid. Uh, she is my age, so about fifty eight, uh, fifty nine, and she she says I'm a virgin. I I and I intend to die a virgin, and the Lord has been good, and my Buckron family. Uh, really has been an encouragement to me. And that's why when someone comes to me and they say, yes, but I'm, I've got these strong feelings, especially, you know, I'm same-sex attracted. I, I will tell you, uh, I, I want your critique of a reaction that I, I give them. I, I often say to them, but listen to me, you're not special. Yeah. You know, everybody struggles with this. You know, it's, it's not just same-sex attracted mm. people who struggle with this. 
heterosexual, uh, uh, you know, uh, opposite sex attracted people struggle with this. And uh, even married people struggle with this. I mean, yeah. you know, I, I am by nature a serial adulterer. By yeah. by the grace of God, I've not lived that out, but yeah. I, I know my fallenness. And this is why we we need the gospel. We need those relationships mm. to provoke one another to love and to good works. And that's what the church does. It is. And I love that response because I think what I often hear people saying is, and I think they they're thinking this is a helpful thing to say, but they'll often say, oh, well, it's, you know, it's particularly difficult for you to be a Christian, isn't it? I don't need to hear that. Yeah. Otherwise, my, my sinful tendency is going to take that and say, this isn't fair, God. Right. Why am I paying this cost that no one else is paying? What helps me is saying, actually, no, no, it's the same cost of discipleship for everyone. Right. Everyone has cross. to, everyone has to say no to, to longings and deny self and take up the cross. And that's what most helps me. So I think that, that's a really good response. Well, good. I'm glad to know it. I've used it a lot, and it is always a little shocking. But I, I do think when we when we feel somehow isolated, no, yeah. my my temptation's greater, my yeah. struggle's harder. No, this is what it is yeah. to be. It's just fallen and broken. One type of what is true of all of us, and I th- actually that I think helps evangelistically as well as pastorally because, again, when I when I've interacted with non Christian people who would identify as gay actually the culture is saying to them you're different you're special you you have a parade we celebrate you and i often find that the the gospel lands on them as a as a great comfort when they hear actually jesus isn't treating you any differently he doesn't have a separate gospel for you no that's right it's the same message for all of us and deep down i think people we, we are unique and we are different but none of us is in that sense none of us is special Right, we're all Jesus treats us the same. That is actually very reassuring and very comforting. I think it's disingenuous when churches say, "Oh, well, you know, we welcome, we welcome people with this struggle, gay uh, or whatever." And I, I, I say, "Well, man, we do too. We, there's, there's no one, yeah, uh, that we don't welcome and say, well, no, we want you mm. to come." Now, membership and following Christ is. is a different thing. There, there are going to be standards there, but everyone's yeah. welcome to come in the door. I, and those standards apply to everyone. Apply to everyone. So, yeah, there's no. In that sense, there's no discrimination. Uh, you've spoken. I heard you one time. Uh, we were both at uh, the signing of the Nashville Statement and the crafting of that. And uh, one of the things you said when you you addressed those of us who were there, you talked about the erosion of uh, just uh, friendships. That like we, it seems like we no longer have a category hmm. of close same-sex friendships. Uh, the the world, like you know, we look back at Abraham Lincoln and Joshua Speed, hmm. and they say, "Oh, they were probably gay." Yeah. And we look at David and Jonathan, we say, "Oh, there was more there than just a friendship." Yeah. Uh, but I know, you know, in my teen years, I had a, an extremely close personal friendship with. Um, uh, a guy my age that I named my, my oldest son for, hmm. uh, and he remains uh, my dearest, most intimate friend. We've shared so much of life together, and um, I, I, I have felt sometimes almost embarrassed to talk about how close we yeah. are because someone's going to assume something. And yeah. I think that's a dangerous thing for us to pull back from yeah. What I think is a good design of God to give us healthy re- 
friendships. I think it is. I think we've we've very much downgraded friendship in our culture because we've put so much focus on romantic and sexual fulfillment as being the key to a full life. And I think it means that we, we, we are neglecting, and to our peril, the other ways in which the Bible has us, as you say, ex- experience deep fellowship, deep friendship with other people. And we need that. Uh, married people need that. You, One of us need it. That's right. You recently wrote an article on uh, the Gospel Coalition website, uh, May Same-Sex Attracted Christians Have Non-Sexual Romantic Relationships. Can can you discuss your argument there? Yeah, I, I get asked this a lot. So a lot of people who are same-sex attracted want to be faithful to the biblical sexual ethic will sometimes say, can I, have a, can I still have a boyfriend even if we're not expressing it physically? And I kind of want to... Honor them for wanting to honor the Bible's teaching on sexual ethics. Right. That's, that's a good starting point. But I think it's a category mistake because I think the the architecture of friendship is very different to the architecture of, say, marriage. Marriage has to be exclusive to work. Friendship actually often flourishes by not being exclusive. There's nothing about friendship that makes it a zero-sum game. If I'm close to you and become close to someone else, that doesn't mean you have less of my friendship. Right. That's not the case, obviously, with marriage. And my fear with those who are trying to have a sort of non-sexual but romantic friendship is that it's trying to, it's confusing two categories and it makes for a very unstable compound. You're trying to take what should be friendship and put it in a quasi-marital sort of context. And I think something will give. Yeah, I, I agree. I think it's a dangerous category. Yeah. Because I think... Uh, ultimately, a romantic relationship, just by its own, by nature, is driving towards something. Uh, yes, I mean a deeper commitment, a deeper yeah. connection. That's what it does. Whereas, and it's not to say friendship can't be deep. It can that's be right. ext- wonderfully deep, beautifully deep. But it, it's deep in a different way. Right to my, marriage. My, it's, it, it is my friendship with with uh, Mike Cooper, the man I, I mentioned earlier. It, uh, it's never seeking to progress toward yeah. uh, anything physical, not, not even holding. We don't hold hands, yeah. you know, though I've been in some cultures where men do that. Well, I, I remember but, my first visit to Southeast Asia. I was introduced to a guy I was going to be working with. We had a long car journey. We were both sat in the back of the car, and he had his hand on my knee the entire journey. Uh-huh, and the, yeah. the kind of repressed Brit in me was sort of thinking, I can't cope with this, I can't cope with this. And I had to just tell myself, okay, this is just – he's yeah, just right. – that's just you know his equivalent of a handshake, right? And when I visit my uh, you know, friends in uh, their Palestinian friends living in Israel, you know they the, the men always do the kiss yeah. on the cheek, and it's just uh, a cultural expression, but it's not romantic. It isn't, and I you know there's there's a discussion here for another time, but I think the the fact that we've we've sexualized almost all human touch again is probably not a healthy thing in the West. Uh, so I have uh, in my church a young man who has publicly identified as same-sex attracted but really wants to honor and serve mm. the Lord. Uh, so what advice would you give me and my church how we can be faithful in helping him? Thank you for, for wanting to be, and praise God for him. Yes, um, absolutely. I think don't, don't make this the lens through which you see him. Right. And encourage him not to make it the lens through which he sees himself on, on any given day of the week. You know, any of us have, I don't know how many struggles with sin. 
um, that we're, we're wrestling with. And I'll never forget a member of, of, of my church sharing with a colleague of mine who had asked him how his battle with homosexuality was going. This, this church member replied, you do know that's not the only sin I struggle with, don't you? Yeah. And he said, but it's the only one you ever asked me about. <laughs> and I thought, actually, that was, that was something all of us needed to hear. I think we sort of had put him in a bit of a category with that, which, which actually wasn't fair to him and it, it wasn't, wasn't true. So I think don't, don't make it the thing that defines the pastoral relationship or how others see him or how he sees himself. And different Christians need different things on this. Some, some Christians need greater theological clarity. Others need a bit of accountability in terms of their friendships and feelings and, and all that kind of stuff. Others just need, they just need healthy companionship. Right. And are finding actually isolation is the biggest challenge. So I think preaching, again, preaching up how the church's family will be a wonderful help to that particular brother. Thank you. We are striving to do that faithfully. And preaching up friendship. And Proverbs is full of wonderful teaching on what it means to to be and have a friendship that we need. Absolutely. Now, you're also a preacher. Let me look over your shoulder. I like to talk to preachers about how they prepare and preach. Hmm. So uh, what, what, what genre, for instance, do you like to preach the most? I really love preaching narrative. Do you? Mm-hmm. Uh, um, I think partly because Old Testament, yeah, and but also gospel as well. I I love seeing how the author is through narrative trying to show you what he wants you to see and what matters the most. There's a sort of a it's it's a fun kind of a bit of a detective yeah I agree. Uh, thing going on there, and it's always there. Um, the, the, everything in you know the scriptures are God breathed and and so beautifully inspired. But I just the the ways in which the author signals what matters the most is more subtle, I think, with narrative. And I just find it enormously enjoyable to to sort of see what the writer's trying to point the lens at and trying to nod towards for you to kind of take note of. I I, I agree. You know, it's always what the author's doing with the words. It's not merely... What what the storyline is? What no, he's doing not, with the words? They're not just reporting stuff that yeah. happened. They're they're showing you what you need to see. Do you have a you know what a sugar stick sermon is? No. Okay, I, I thought this was. A <laughs> I don't know what a sugar stick is. Uh, 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 oh well, sugar stick was something long ago. You used to give a, a baby. Uh, you could put sugar in like a, just a piece of cloth or something. That's called a sugar stick. Sounds like give. something they don't let you do anymore. Yeah, you, you don't. But any we. We preachers still talk about sugar stick sermons. It's the sermon you've got, you know, in your pocket that you can preach anywhere, anytime. Mm. And it's, do you have one or two like that? That I do actually. Um, a kind of if you know, if you're somewhere and the, the preacher suddenly doesn't turn up or right. is taken sick, um, I've got one on Mark ten forty five. I basically have a couple of sermons on my favorite verses that are, I I know enough in my head that I could probably be coherent enough. <laughs> At the yeah. drop of a hat to preach, and one on Romans five verse eight as well. For those ones, I tend not to have an Old Testament narrative one, simply because to preach Old Testament narrative well, you often have to take quite big passages. I think that right. the kind of the teaching points I find tend to happen over a longer trajectory. So you wouldn't necessarily preach five verses of Old Testament narrative. You might need to preach half a chapter or a chapter or even two chapters. But I love having a couple of individual verses 
that I can use at the drop of a hat to to preach in a way that will be useful evangelistically, but hopefully also encourage the saints as well. Uh, what what Old Testament narrative have you preached recently or comes to mind? I preached not long ago on David and Goliath, which is, the, is one of the kind of iconic yeah. Old Testament narratives. Um, and again, was just really helped by not going in there already having decided what the main points were going to be and what the application was and what the message would be, but actually thinking, okay, let's try and start afresh, read this as if I'm reading it for the first time, and the the, the author is sat next to me and he's kind of, you know, nodding at the the things he wants me to notice. And that that really changed the way I preached it. But, you know, that's when you can preach a text that everybody knows the story and you can show them things that they've not really seen or noticed and and what the author is doing, that, uh, an audience gets excited by that. And we get excited. And yeah, that's the beautiful thing about the scriptures. You can think, absolutely. I thought I knew this passage, but it turns out I don't. That well, happens all the time. One of my uh, favorite uh, texts, I, I love to preach from, and I've probably preached, I don't know, 50 to 100 times, somewhere from Luke 23 <laughs> uh, about the thief on the cross. Hmm. And, you know, when we're talking about what Luke does with the words there, hmm. uh you know, he has everybody say, save yourself, save yourself, save three three hmm. times. The soldiers, the priest, and the other thief on the cross is save yourself. And the, the thief that exercises faith, his verb is simply remember. Hmm. And you just see Luke doing that, save yourself, save yourself, save yourself and us. But this thief just says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. You know, he's the only guy who believes in the resurrection before it happens. There's not another person in the Gospels who in any way anticipates the resurrection. I mean, Jesus has been telling the disciples Hmm. for six months, he's gonna, this is gonna happen. But nobody's at the foot of the cross going, hey, I know it looks bad, hang around three days, he's coming back. (laughs) But the thief says, this is the king. Yeah, and he he doesn't say save yourself because he knows God is going to save him. He's he's the king and he's going to rule on the throne. Oh, that's good, isn't it? Isn't it great? That's wonderful. I want to become a Christian again. Yeah, I mean, well, <laughs> I, I, that's what that's what when I talk to preachers and we start talking about the excitement of the words, it it really is thrilling. You yeah, know, it, it's it's what uh, the thrill of preaching is. Uh, well, uh, what is your routine for study? Do you study in the mornings or I, I try to. Um, I'm. I'm typically my mind is better in the morning. Um, so if I can, I'll. I'll study in the morning. Do you get up early? Um, uh, <laughs> I like being up early. I'm not very good at getting up early. So jet lag is sometimes for my friend on this. If I'm. If I love traveling to the states from the UK yeah, because the first few days, early. I'm up at four, four thirty, wide awake, happy, getting you know lots of things done before breakfast. I love that, um, but I find that hard to, to sustain. Um, so, yeah, if I, if I can, I'll, I'll tend to study in the mornings. If I'm preparing a sermon, I want to get into the text and get the text into me as soon as I can. So if in the routine of a, of a regular preaching ministry, that would typically be a Monday. I'd try and hang out with the passage as much as I can. Mondays are sometimes... If you've been preaching all day Sunday, Monday, I tend to have what I, I think of as a church hangover. I'm kind of emotionally drained. 
a little bit frazzled, um, not always at my sharpest. So I don't have high expectations <laughs> of profound thoughts on a Monday, but I'll still start looking at the text then. Um, that's when I will be in the kind of discovery mode, trying to think, okay, what's what's here? Let's just let's just do lots of observing and noticing things. And not giving myself any pressure at that point to have any grand conclusions or anything other than just a list of things that I've noticed. Do you and, preach? Do you preach every Sunday? Um, I did when I was on the staff of of the church I was at. Um, I would preach probably four out of five Sundays, and I loved I loved the rhythm of that. And yeah. I would love Mondays filing yesterday's sermon and thinking I get to start again now. Um, and I'd file the sermon with a with a combination of thankfulness that it didn't destroy the church, also a sense of I wish I'd had a couple more days on it, and thinking, but I get to do it again now. Well, I've been blessed every time I've heard you preach. Uh, you're very thoughtful, insightful. Uh, you're gifted in your delivery. I can tell you pay attention to the way you deliver the sermon as well as, well, I, as I, the I, content of it. I don't know how I come across, and I, I'm one of these people who would rather, you know, crawl over broken glass than watch myself preach. Um, but I, I'm someone who doesn't naturally like sitting and listening to sermons. So I'm trying to preach a sermon that I would find interesting. Well, you, you succeed at that. <laughs> it's been a joy to have you on the Pastor Will podcast. I always like to conclude with what I call the twinkling of an eye round. I just ask a bunch of bullet point questions sure. and, and uh, just get your answer to them, all right? Sure. Yeah, all right. What's your favorite place to hike? Um, if I can get there, the Scottish Highlands. Um, if I can get even further than that, the Hebridean Islands off northwest Scotland. Uh more convenient is the Lake District for me because it's about four hours drive rather than 12. Love uh, it. Your favorite football team? I don't follow football. You're British and you don't follow I don't, football. And I don't drink tea. I'm stunned. I'm I know. Stunned. I, okay. I'm, well, that, that's why I leave the country so often. Yeah, because well, I, I get it now. I'm, yeah. Where would you most enjoy or want to go on vacation? Um, well, Scotland would be – I'm someone who just loves pointing the car north – uh, for for vacations, I, I if someone puts me on a tropical beach, I won't complain. But I typically like going somewhere north, yeah. bleak, mountainous, um, that kind of place. So I'd lo- I would love to visit Alaska. Oh yeah, you you must do it. Yeah. Who's your favorite secular writer? Uh, for pure fun, Bill Bryson. He he writes yeah. a lot of travel books. He just will have me laughing and snorting yeah, I, and. I, I, look, I go all the way back to the mother tongue. His, yes. his book on English is yeah. just absolutely great. He's someone I, I reread, and that's not common. I think for for sheer pleasure, probably uh, David McCulloch. Yeah. Um, his John Adams biography is one of my favorite biographies. You're into American history, right? You enjoy American history? I do, actually, yeah. Who, who like A favorite character from American history? Well, John Adams is one of them, thanks to McCulloch. Um, I'm fascinated by Jefferson just because he's he's a mass of contradictions. Mm-hmm. So is. profound in some senses, so deeply flawed. Washington, again, is just enigmatic and fascinating. Um, so those are probably the three that I – I just saw Hamilton recently, so I'm going to have to read that book as well. You have a favorite American rock band? Huh. I'm not sure I do. 
I, I listen to a quite a wide range of music, some Christian, some secular, a lot of classical, so nothing leaps to mind. You familiar with Moody Blues' Days of Future Past? No idea. Okay. Yeah, I will go look it up. It's a, uh, it's a British band, but it's, it's it? from my youth. Okay. You've never heard Nights in White Satin? Yes. Well, that's from Days of Future Past. Then Moody I know Blues. them, yeah. It's symphonic. It's beautiful. Huh. It's, a, it's, an, it's about a day. I like sometimes I begin my day with the day dawns, the first cut on that album. It's 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 great. It's like Grieg, uh, uh, you know, in the Hall of Mountain King, you know, morning. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, same kind of thing. It, it's a it's a symphonic description of the dawning. It's beautiful. Wow. Anyway, just oh, I thought, sure, I thought, I bet he <laughs> listens to Days of Future Past. But now you will. Now you I will. will. I'll look it up. Hey, it's been a joy to have you. Thank you, Sam Albury, for being with us on the Pastor Well podcast. And thanks to all of you who tuned in. If you've not yet subscribed, make, make sure that you do so on YouTube or on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss an episode. I look forward to seeing you again on Pastor Well. <laughs>